Hi, my name is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast of the New Testament. I'll be using as the text the King James Version, along with the Joseph Smith Translation. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll also be using quotes from general authorities of the Church, the Apostles and Prophets, and BYU professors and others, and uh, every word out of the Scriptures themselves. So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi there, welcome back. This is going to be for John chapter 18, which will also cover some of Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. And uh, this is going to be going into the Garden of Gethsemane. Alrighty, now I'm going to be going back and forth between scriptures, so you probably don't want to try to follow these because they're going to be jumping around a lot. Verse 1 of John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, which where there where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. I often wonder if maybe he went to this garden a lot. Uh, So this was a familiar place for him uh, to, to be with his disciples and to pray. Luke 22 says he came out and went as he was accustomed to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. In Matthew twenty six thirty six, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, in Mark fourteen thirty two, and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which was a garden, and the disciples began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and to complain in their hearts, wondering if this be the Messiah. Back to Matthew it says, and said unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go yonder and pray. And uh, in Mark it says, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, said to his disciples, "Sit ye here while I pray, while I shall pray." Verse forty of Luke says, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, "Pray that ye enter not into temptation." According to Elder McConkie, he did not fit the popular pattern for the Jewish Messiah, and the disciples had not yet received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Their temptation would be that they would not believe that Jesus was the Christ. Back to Matthew, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be very so- and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. In other words, he began to be distressed and troubled. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and rebuked them. And then back to Matthew, and said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, or deeply grieved, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. So stay awake is what he's telling them. Stay and watch. And he went a little further and felt, let's see, let me start here. Um, Okay, back to Mark, it says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. And then in, in Luke, or in Mark, it says, verse 35, and he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. And in Matthew 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. The statement that he kneeled in Luke's Mark says he fell on the ground, that is, prostrated himself, and Matthew says he fell on his face. No doubt he did all of these things over a long period and in the course of repeated prayers. That was by Elder McConkie. In um, Luke it says, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. In Mark it says that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. In Matthew, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The word Abba is an Aramaic word meaning Papa or Daddy. The translated word for cup means a person's lot. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
not my will be done, but thine. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Elder McConkie said, If we might indulge in speculation, we would suggest that the angel who came into this second Eden was the same person who dwelt in the first Eden. At least Adam, who is Michael the archangel, the head of the whole human family, or the whole heavenly hierarchy of angelic ministrants, seems the logical one to give aid and comfort to this Lord on such a, to his Lord on such a solemn occasion. Adam fell, and Christ redeemed men from the fall. Theirs was a joint enterprise, both parts of which were essential for the salvation of the Father's children. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he sweat as it were great gouts, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In Doctrine and Covenants section 19 we read, Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. And when he rose up from prayer, and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping, for they were filled with sorrow. And said unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? In other words, are you so powerless that you could not stay awake with me? And said unto Peter, Sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Perhaps the very reason Peter, James, and John slept was to enable a divine providence to withhold from their ears and seal up from their eyes those things which only gods can comprehend. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And they said unto him, The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. Being perfect, Jesus did not and could not know what, what sin felt like. He did not have the experience of feeling the effects of sin, neither physically, spiritually, mentally, nor emotionally, nor not until Gethsemane. That is, now, in an instant, he began to feel all the sensations and effects of sin, all the guilt, anguish, darkness, turmoil, depression, anger, and physical sickness that sin brings. All of this the Savior felt, and much, much more. That was by uh, Skinner and Ogden again. The shock to the Savior at this moment must have been overwhelming because he was perfect. He was also perfectly sensitive to all the effects and ramifications of sin on our mental, emotional, and physical makeup. His makeup was such that it could not tolerate poison, disease, extreme heat, cold, dehydration, or a hundred other harmful substances and conditions. More significantly, as Mark describes for us, the experience Jesus had of finally comprehending sin, as well as the feelings that issue from sin, were absolutely surprising to him. He had never before experienced these sensations. Not only did it surprise him, but it terrified him. For the first time in his eternal existence, the God of heaven and earth was experiencing the justifying or the terrifying feelings associated with sin. Jesus felt something in Gethsemane he had never known before. Perhaps that is the full meaning of, of Alma's words, that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be born as a mortal so that he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people. Elder Neil A. Maxwell wrote, Imagine Jehovah, the creator of this and other worlds, astonished. Jesus knew cognitively what, must be, what he must do, 
but not experientially. He had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process and atonement of an atonement before. Thus, when the agony came in its fullness, it was so much more, so much worse than even he, with his unique intellect, had ever imagined. Again, uh, that was Neely Maxwell. That prayer, in all its infinite reverence and awe, was heard. That st- that strong crying and those tears were not rejected. We may not intrude too closely into this scene. It is shrouded in a halo and a mystery into which no footstep may penetrate. We, as we contemplate it, are like those disciples. Our senses are confused. Our perceptions are not clear. We can but enter into their amazement and sore distress, half waking, half oppressed with an irresistible weight of trouble, of troubled slumber. They only felt that deeper than anything which they could fathom as, as it far transcended all that even in our purest moments we can pretend to understand. The place seems haunted by presences of good and evil struggling in mighty but silent contest for the eternal victory. They see him, before whom the demons had fled in, in howling terror, lying on his face upon the ground. They hear that voice wailing in murmurs of broken agony, which had co- commanded the, the wind and the sea, and they obeyed him. The great drops of anguish which fall from him in the dreadful struggle look to them like heavy gouts of blood. That was by Farrar. And uh, then McConkie adds, and so they were. Back to Matthew, and he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither knew they what to answer him. And he left them again, and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and said unto them, Sleep on now, and take rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners." And he cometh to them the third time, and said unto them, Sleep on now, and take rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And after they had slept, he returned, he, he, he said unto them, Arise, and let us go. Let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And after they had finished their sleep, he said, Rise up, and let us go. Lo, he who betrayeth me is at hand. Jesus has done all he can for now. He will suffer again on the cross, where he again will experience all the horrors of Gethsemane, until the Spirit tells him, it is finished. You've done all that is necessary for the atonement to be infinite. So here they're waiting for Judas to show up. To better understand the impact of the atonement, I just want to read a couple things here. Uh, Alma chapter 7 verse 12 says, And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, His empathy and capacity to succor us in our sickness, temptations, or sins were demonstrated and perfected in the process of the great atonement. The marvelous atonement brought about not only immortality, but also the final perfection of Jesus' empathetic and helping capacity. No mortal can cry out, He does not understand my plight, for my trials are unique. There is nothing outside the scope of the Savior's experience. None of us can tell Jesus anything about depression. As a result of his mortal experience culminating in the atonement, the Savior knows, understands, and feels every human condition, every human woe, and every human loss. He can comfort as no other. He can lift burdens as no other. He can listen as no other. 
Elder Merrill J. Bateman said, For many years I thought of the, Savior's, uh, of the Savior's experience in the garden and on the cross as places where a large mass of sin was heaped upon him. Through the words of Alma, Abinadi, Isaiah, and other prophets, however, my view has changed. Instead of an impersonal mass of sin, there was a long line of people. As Jesus felt our infirmities, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, and was bruised for our iniquities, the atonement was an intimate, personal experience in which Jesus came to know how to help each of us. The Pearl of Great Price teaches that Moses was shown all the inhabitants of the earth, which were numberless as the sand upon the seashore. If Moses beheld every soul, then it seems reasonable that the creator of the universe has the power to become intimately acquainted with each of us. He learned about your weaknesses and mine. He experienced your pains and sufferings. He experienced mine. I testify that he knows us. He understands the way in which we deal with temptations. He knows our weaknesses, but more than that, more than just knowing us, he knows how to help us if we come to him in faith. It seems that Elder Bateman is saying that for the time Jesus was in the garden and on the cross, somehow incomprehensible to us, time stood still to him, while every single person, an infinite number of people, was seen in vision by Jesus so he could know personally every person's sins, weaknesses, pains, sorrows, etc., so that he could then he could so that he could take those himself in the atoning sacrificial act. They could, he could take them upon himself. So when we think that Jesus suffered for us, he truly suffered for us individually and personally. Even though the, the uh, atonement was infinite, it was also intimate and personal. Anyway, that's the end of the chapter for today, and we'll talk to you later next time. Bye.